the arts, doing a PhD in the arts and design. Learn about the process, challenges, and politics of practice research in a creative field. Good morning, Julia. It's a great pleasure to be able to have this interview with you about your PhD. Can you tell us, how did you come across your topic uh, for your PhD? Or maybe even, you know, the, the place where you basically um, popped into your topic? Yes, yeah, so um, I found the topic before I actually knew that I wanted to do a PhD. It was more the other way around. So I was um, working a lot with materials and um kind of the value systems we assign to our natural materials that surround us. Um, previously, I had worked with a lot of animal materials and how an animal gets, in a way, transformed into material and then into an object. Um, and then in 2007, I was designer in residence at um, Sapporo Artist in Residence um, in Sapporo, Japan, and it's in Hokkaido, in the northernmost uh, island of Japan. And I had applied for this residency because um, my cow benches had been shown in Japan and I had visited the Tikichi fish market and was so inspired by all the materials and all these objects and all these textures and at the same time quite appalled by how much we pull out of the sea on a daily basis. So um, at that time, um, I had had my own studio in London for a couple of years um, and I just felt that I needed to get out of this very quick turnaround of produce something new for that for that exhibition or for that exhibition. And I wanted to really immerse myself in a topic for a couple of months. So I applied for this residency and I applied with my own brief, which was to look at man and marine life and um, to look at what we pull out of the sea, uh, what materials we make from it and what where this relationship is really fruitful and where it really harms our our own um, ability to live on this planet because I looked a lot at overfishing and a pollution of the oceans and so forth. So in a way, retrospectively, it started with research, but it was always intended to be this very artistic output. Um, and then on the fish market, um, I came across a piece of seaweed that was approximately It was folded, so it was folded into a piece that was 40 centimeters wide or long and um, 20 centimeters wide. And I immediately saw the leather in it and I immediately imagined that there might be a craft that I'm just not aware of. So because I was in, a, in another country, in another culture, I had um, the wrong blinkers, so to speak. I had a wrong or kind of blinkers of my culture there. And I immediately thought, oh, my God, there must be this Japanese craft of seaweed-made objects, um, then found out that there wasn't. And then I was wondering, oh, this is very interesting. Why are they not seeing it as a material for making? And a lot of our work, I think, concerns framing, like cultural framing of um, you know, materials, of where, in which context they could show up. And basically the seaweed had been framed so intensely for thousands of years as food that nobody kind of considered making anything else from it. Um, so back then I built another sculpture out of boxes from the fish market. But that minute, that spark of, wow, we could make anything from seaweed, um, 
kind of stayed with me. And then I thought, if, if this craft doesn't exist that I just imagined, maybe it doesn't exist yet. Maybe it's something that uh, I should help bring to life. So I started working with the seaweed, exploring what we can make from it. Um, took 10 kilos back from Japan and started just playing in the studio with it. Um, and then the seaweed, in a way, took over and it uh, demanded more and more time and more and more immersion as other on more possibilities came up. So me starting a PhD was my, you know, me trying to buy the seaweed the time it deserves, basically, <laughs> to kind of really make enough room in my life so that I can really work with this at the depth that it demands. When you talk about making this time and, and making this space available, I mean, with your PhD, you were in a very special um, position where you actually um, not only worked with um, on university, but also uh, with other institutions. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the setup and how this um, fell into place. Yes. So back then I was living and working in London And I was teaching at the Royal College of Art in design products. And um, in parallel to my work with seaweed, I was there discussing how research can be, you know, finding a place together with practice. And I heard that um, some colleagues of mine and our kind of uh, Hilary French and Gareth um, Williams were applying for some AHRC funding together with the Victoria and Albert Museum. So the Victoria and Albert Museum is a museum in London that was founded in 1851 um, after the First World Exposi uh, Exposition. And it's maybe the biggest museum for um, art and design, they always say, but you could also say craft and culture or commerce. So they have these collections, textiles of textiles and glass and ceramics and um, silverware, but, uh, but they also kind of, question they also have this rapid collection for example where they really bring in items that um, talk about culture as it's emerging the idea was that the Victorian Albert Museum that has a mandate for research would link together with the RCA that could have the doctorate placement basically and they would phrase a brief together and they would um, find a person who could do this brief And the brief was um, super interesting. The minute I heard it, I was like, wow, this could be great. I could apply for that. Um, because it asked how um, speculative and critical design practices can be shown or find a place within a museum like the Victoria and Albert Museum. And there were many aspects of this question that I found really interesting. A, I had been doing that kind of work for many years, this raising Uh, debate, raising discussion, raising dialogue through um, materiality, through objects, but also this question of how um, how can we use a museum not as a, dis a space for dissemination, but actually a, a space for a community of practice to come together. So, which is a lot more, I would say, a lot more useful in the sense of um, researching something, because the museum is a platform where you have people from all walks of life, or not all, but like quite a broad spectrum of walks of life, um, coming in to engage with a topic. And in a way, this is exactly the setup you need as a researcher to 
figure out what you're doing, this kind of feedback loop to understand your work in the context of people, of kind of a, of, um, a public or, or different kinds of publics. Basically, your institution, the Royal College of Arts and um, the museum were getting together um, and offering a kind of a, 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 a PhD that would be done um, in, inside and together with both institutions. Is that correct? Yes, so so that's really correct. So basically, it was really fascinating because they had uh, we had two supervisors. We had one from the Royal College of Art and one from uh, the Victoria and Albert Museum, uh, Jana Scholze, who was their furniture curator and is now running the uh, curating design, curating contemporary design MA at Kingston University. So she was our supervisor, and I say our because we were actually two students, one working in practice and one working in theory. And the other student is Gillian Russell, who is a um, professor in, um, in Canada now. She moved to Canada. And, and that was really fantastic because we were asking the same questions, but with very different methods. So immediately we were not alone, but we networked and we discussed and we had the same kind of context to work with. And that was a really, really fruitful setup. So as part of that PhD, I, as a practitioner, as a by practice person, was offered a six-month residency in the V&A. So I had a residency studio that was open to the public twice a week, I think, or every two weeks, twice a week. And that was uh, linked in with some of the outreach programs. So in a way, I would work together to devise a family activity that would relate um, with our studio. And we had some groups of people coming in um, and we were connected to the talk series that they have there and the workshops. And so in a way, it was plugged into a very lively um, interaction stream that the museum has anyway. Um, and it was plugged into both research and to this outreach program quite successfully. You were talking about uh, critical design. And um, also in your PhD, you talk about transition design. So can you tell us a little bit about what this approach means and how it is related to your topic of seaweed? Yes, yeah, so basically, um, when I imagined what we might make from seaweed, um, that's already a speculation. That's already this moment of like, wow, okay, I imagine we can make this. And this moment of, uh, this eureka moment of, oh, what if we could make this and this from seaweed is basically both the driver of my research process when I'm starting to implement that, but it's also something, it's also the most brilliant moment of any any design process, this moment when you can imagine. So I think a lot of my work relates to also making this moment, like being able to share that moment. Um, so when I'm engaging communities into discussing, I don't want I don't want them to fill in a spreadsheet. I want them to have that same kind of moment of discovery and of, oh, wow, imagine if we could make that. So I'm not crafting my objects as a function, like in functional terms, as in function, as in, you know, as you would craft a cup. I'm crafting them as communication design, you could say, in the widest possible sense, so that they enable people who engage with, that studio or that process to have the same, not the same, but their own eureka moment, their own kind of moment of, wow, could we make this world with seaweed? 
And I think this is what unites transition design and um, critical design in a way, or speculative design, that you are enabling people to imagine something that's quite far in the future. That's not, you know, next year's thing. That's not that you say, oh, the trend of um, next season will be pink or something, but that you are uh, letting them imagine something that might come to fruition in 20 years, let's say. And both transition design and um, speculative design have an interest in this long time frame and in enabling people in discussions and discourse and exploration of of that long time frame for different reasons, perhaps, um, but they both share this long time frame. And when I crafted or when I started working in my PhD, it wasn't that I um, had these methods and that I first constructed, oh, I'm going to use that method and that one. I started like every other student with reading and with looking and, and basically just compiling what inspired me and what ins- what I read where I thought, oh, this could be a great way of engaging people. This gives me that nugget of knowledge that was missing in the puzzle. So um, I had both of these with critical design um, and with transition design. With critical design because it allowed for a space that was not so utilitarian and not so it wasn't going into production in six months or so so it allowed this freedom of uh, thinking scope and the same with transition design maybe with the difference being that transition design always has an interest in futures that are actually um, imaginable to be implemented so in a way these positive futures that we should come together to strive to achieve whereas Critical design quite often also points out bleakness uh, along the pathway we are doing, and then wants us to question whether we are on the right path. So, so you want your your aim is, if I understand it right, is more to speculate than to to than to criticize. I guess for me the two two have such a big overlap that I wouldn't even divide them. I always struggle to define one or the other. I think it's kind of. Yes, we have these two terms now, but when is something... I mean, everything we do, if we do it con- in a considered way, is a critique of what has been done before as well. So in a way, there is always this critique. Of, otherwise, we wouldn't need to change anything, right? I think these terms are quite malleable. And um, sometimes it's a struggle to pin it down too much. And sometimes things should be pinned down maybe later in the process rather than earlier. So... Uh, As a context, I studied, of course, design products in the Royal College of Art between 2002 and 2004 in my master. This was really the birthplace of this kind of critical design field. And so in a way, that was what I was educated in or what I grew up with as a possibility. Um, But then when you look at my early works, for example, with the cow bench, it's enough to make one cow bench uh, and have lots of people reflect with this one bench And it doesn't need to become or it should not become like a mass produced object because it 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 works as a story. It doesn't work as a good way of using, you know, the better way of using these materials in the future. So in a way there, it is very happily working in uh, the realm of speculative or critical design. But when it's about seaweed, there is actually huge potential to if if we manage to grow seaweed not with an extractionist or extractive mindset but with with a regenerative mindset then we can actually 
benefit the ecosystems we are interacting with by producing more. So in a way, seaweed has this very specific potential of um, becoming an, an agent of repair. Um, and the designer could become the person who finds the uses of seaweed that will then enable it to become that agent of repair in um, eco kind of social settings. And for that, it does make sense to actually broaden it out. It, it doesn't, it, it's not done if there is one big seaweed object and we start the discourse, but it actually, that seaweed objects point towards an action and it should point, it should kind of um, pull together people who, and inspire people to actually walk that walk and implement that future. So that's why it's more related or as related to critical, to uh, transition design as it is to critical or speculative design. Tell us how how you approached this and what the setting was. What was wonderful with this framing was that I had a half year set out from the beginning in which I knew that I would be at the V&A, I would have my studio, and that would be really the moment to do the practical part of my PhD. So I think that's great because it gives you a setting to which you work and then you do it because otherwise you kind of sometimes think, oh, I'm not ready, I'm not ready, it's not happening. And, and you're never ready if you're waiting for being ready. You just, you know, if you have a set time, you'll be ready because it will start then, basically. So I think that was, that was really great. I would advise anybody to kind of try and give themselves a project plan that has this um, setting for practice built in already so that you don't make that a variable that might happen or might not happen or might happen a year later. So going into the VNA, we did we, we came with lots of seaweed. We did of course some experiments before. I say we immediately because I knew it was a lot about the dialogue within a team. So I assembled a team of people that were like one person was my student from Uh, Hamburg, who was doing an internship with us. Another person was a student from Eindhoven who was already uh, working with me in Hamburg and then came with us to London. And then we had different people, everyone who asked to be part of it, to kind of come and work with us. We said, yeah, yeah, sure, come. So we had a community of practice that was like the first um, group that went then into the V&A. And then we had all the other people from the V&A, you know, the conservators, the curators, and all these people who would drop in for a coffee and we would have dialogues with them. And then we had also the public that would drop into the studio. So we had different circles of input, let's say, and of discourse going on within the uh, community of practice at the V&A. And then we literally came and we said, we have this half year, we bring as much as we know we need and tools and And we just started from that. We ordered some seaweed, we started playing, and then we started uh, with a loose enough plan, like with a, with a solid enough plan that we wouldn't get bored, but with a loose enough plan to actually let all these experiences and all these inputs shape what we're doing. And I think that's important. We didn't come and, okay, now we have the construction phase of ABC, um, but we came with, okay, let's be inspired by what we find here and let's both the seaweed and the V&A setting shape what we are developing. Yes. So basically, when I explained that process that I wanted to do, um, Gareth, who was my advisor at the time, was saying, oh, okay, so you're going to the V&A and so you want to, 
you want to do a department of seaweed? Because I was explaining him that I saw seaweed as, as important as all these other materials that have or have had the departments in the DNA. And I was like, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm doing. So the way I didn't, I didn't even have to come up with a title. He came up with it in dialogue. And I think that's so important that you need to open yourself up for these influences that come. So I also read, there's a lot of readings I did that I did not write about in the end, but about this kind of influx way of working um, about um, bricolage and about, you know, I would go past the container of the VNA in the backyard, I have a container and I would just look what's in and then pull something out and then that would start the experiments of the day, for example, and these kind of things that really being open for influence. And of course, it also caused some worries with my supervisors because they wanted me to pin down exactly what I'm doing. And I was like, yeah, it will emerge, it will emerge. And of course, there were these moments when I said, no, you have to know what you're recording, who you're asking, what you're doing, um, which was great that they asked me because in a way it made me record more than I would have had otherwise. We had a diary session, like once a week, we would sit down and have like an hour and a half between our team to really kind of harvest what has emerged, both in um, objects, but also in di dialogues we would have with people, for example, and between us. So we would have these harvesting se like sessions where we really would pin down what came out. And I think that was super important. But otherwise, there was a lot of loose ends, a lot of kind of things just allowing to, sh to be shaped by the situation. Well, that's, that's very interesting and very unconventional. I mean, it comes to my mind that often with regards to PhDs, there's a lot of talk about methods. There's a lot of talk about rigor. Um, so what is your um, approach or how do you think about methods and methodologies And maybe also rigor, for that matter. <laughs> I think I, in my sketchbook, I once drew this vessel. So in a way, the rigor could be that experimentation vessel, which was outside of that uh, studio that we created. But then I wanted something to grow. You know, if, if, I wanted it to be like a bioreactor in a way. So you have this very rigorous shape that was given by six months in the VNA in this setting so and so many times we have the audience come in uh, so and so many times we invite a list of guests that might be relevant and interested to come and have dialogue with us so in a way we would have these nutrients coming into <laughs> into our community of practice but at the same time the rigor inside that structure would have really prohibited us growing so I think that's in a way how to do it, at least with this practice, to build a safe enough and stable enough framing so that you can then have fluidity within the processes you're doing. Because if you are too rigorous in inside that chamber, that means you are... Quite often this practice starts with a gut feeling, starts with something that, you know, you don't even know the question when you do the first mock-ups. You know that it's interesting and you're following a gut question, gut feeling, but the question might be what you get as an outcome of the mock-up. So you need to allow yourself to actually quite freely explore to be able to, to even get anywhere. That's interesting. Um, I just um, come, came across an... Um 
a quote that you from your PhD where you quote Glanville and who says, and I think that what designers do is they make errors that are opportunities. So it seems that you're also looking out for these kind of opportunities of, you know, what some might call errors. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the biggest differences between, for example, a designerly approach and a scientific approach. Uh, when I now work with scientists here at Alto, for example, they set out to make a flat material. Let's say uh, cellulose, and they say we want to have a sheet of flat material. But if they don't succeed with making that flat material, they just will say, okay, all of this failed. But they won't turn their gaze into having created these beautiful undulating forms that actually might have a specific property of pulling something together or, you know, uh, because they are uh, fixing already in the beginning what they are looking for. Whereas a designer, I think, works or has the potential to work differently, to be able to not fix one point of outcome, but actually fix an array of possible outcomes and then um, loosen some of them, you know, kind of change direction, see what, like every every result gives you an idea of which direction might be the correct one. And you can actually tentatively then say, okay, this one might not work because of what we have found out in the last result. So, but this one seems to have more potential now. And then you kind of uh, work more mycelium-like or more like slime mold, basically, that first puts many directions out and then finds out which is the most fruitful and then decides on that direction. Talking about, um, well, I'm not saying errors, but um, the environment reacting. <laughs> a lot of the work I'm writing at the moment, a lot of the, the papers I'm writing at the moment are especially about these feedback loops that you get from the audience, that you get from the materiality itself, that you get then in combination with the material and the process and in a way learning from these feedback loops um, and building your knowledge of what makes sense to do out of a wide array of these feedback loops. Um, at the Department of Seaweed, what actually did you do? Maybe you can um, tell us, you know, two or three different things that you did with different people. For I know, you know, you had you had these um, you had experts coming in, as you mentioned. You had audiences coming in. How did you, together with them, explore the possibilities of seaweed? Yeah, so it started with bringing the material in. And in a way, the material here is a relational object, you could say, uh, in the sense that having the seaweed as a matter out of place, uh, Mary Douglas, for example, uh, in the museum then challenges what the museum, what other materials are there and how they are selected and why they are there. So the first thing was this challenging of Why is there a textile department but no seaweed department in the V&A? And what would that seaweed department do if it existed? We started working um, simultaneously on little uh, experiments in the department, on the um, engagement activities with different audiences. So, so for example, um, from the education department, we would have you know uh, meetings with the people who are devising the family activity and we would come up together with ideas for the family activity and then I would teach them a bit how to work with the seaweed. So we would come up again 
with something that would make sense in that framing and then they would uh, develop it further and we would run it together or they would run it and I would pop in or I would be part of a talk. Um, so in a way, there were these engagements that we were planning always, which helped us then shape also to figure out what uh, is possible and how the seaweed will, um, you know, in which levels people can engage with the seaweed and how that could become fruit, fruitful for them as a learning experience as well. And then at the same time, we were um, starting to work with it. So, for example, I invited Moya Hucke, who is from Austria, and she is a designer, design researcher, but also has training in millinery um, techniques. And I had worked with her before previously in the Vienna Design Week in one week, and it was such a great dialogue we could have together. May, may I ask, um, could you describe what um, millinery is? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so millinery is the construction of hats. So it's hat making, but it is basically this kind of hard frame hats. And yeah, so the craft of, of hat making. So we had worked together previously, and that, that was, for example, a very nice conversation. We were... Um, in a laboratory setting in the Vienna Design Week just half a year before my residency started. And I asked to be paired with um, a craft, like an artisan or somebody who has a craft skill because I wanted to uh, see how the seaweed relates to different craft skills. So I gave them a list of possible pairings and one of them were millinery, uh, milliner, hat maker, uh, furrier, um, costume maker, um, I don't know what else there was, but there was a whole array of possible crafts that I wanted to relate with. So Moya and I had um, a conversation on Zoom like we have now, and I showed her what the seaweed does, and I said, okay, this is the properties. It kind of uh, gets very soft when it is immersed in water, and then it gets harder when it dries again, but it will still have a bit of stretch when I treat it in this certain way, and um, if I put it onto a frame, it will hold and be translucent. But if it's loosely hanging, it will fall down. And, and I asked her, what material do you think we could pair this with from your realm? So it was literally, it started with a material pairing. And she then said, how about rattan? It has similar properties. It's kind of, uh, you know, when you soak it, it becomes malleable. When you dry it, it becomes hard. But it's also still yielding a bit. So in a way, rattan was a really great um, bone structure when seaweed could be the skin. So we then said, okay, great, let's develop some techniques. And actually I have one of the samples we made after this first conversation is still here. This is many years old now. But this basically was me interpreting our, um, our conversation of the rattan. I then ordered some rattan. I said, okay, I'm going to try and work with it, not knowing any of the techniques, but really interpreting how I could bring the two materials together. And then we started working and making kind of structures and wings. And it was very enjoyable. And, um, and I invited her to join us for a month in the Department of Seaweed in London. And we kind of got inspired by the David Bowie exhibition. So that was another ingredient that the kind of, you know, amazing costumes in that exhibition. And then we kind of started making hats and shoulders and all these, all these kind of things. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, I saw the David Bowie exhibition in Berlin um, <laughs> a bit later. Let's talk a bit about um, outcomes. So 
what in the context of um, this work you would see as, as the outcome of your PhD? Yeah, so we had a lot of um, samples and artifacts, conversations, drawings to make sense of what was going on. Uh, we built the Okinaga note, the, this first big installation that we then placed also in the museum during the design festival. Uh, so that was another kind of discourse, the discourse around this object where very often, even though it said it's made of seaweed, people would still think it's it's about seaweed rather than made of seaweed because it's also, of course, about seaweed, but they would not imagine that it could ever be made of seaweed. So so that was another loop. So So we had the big object and we had all the results of all the dialogues and all the um, kind of samples and everything and I was always reluctant to finish them into finished objects so so at some point when I was asked to make a piece for the design um, design week the first idea I had and I, and that's I wrote about this was to make a seaweed floor because we did have the skills, we did have the knowledge. I had worked with Deutsche Werkstatt in Hellerau to make a seaweed veneer and lacquered it and made a bench. And um, and then we thought, oh, let's make a seaweed floor. Let's just go to one of the hallways in the V&A where there is a beautiful parquet and we remake it in seaweed. And then I slept over it and I thought, no, it's a terrible idea. Because, yes, it can be done, but what will it raise in people? Like, what will it make them... Imagine, what will it make them do? And I realized that if you make a seaweed floor, you have to go to great lengths to actually mute the material. So in a way, the seaweed has to perform in a certain way. You first have to glue it onto a backing material that is wood or something so that it stays straight. Then you lacquer it on top so that people can actually walk over it. So you're muting it from the bottom and you're muting it from the top Yes, the color will still be gorgeous and this color will still change, but it's basically as muted as possible to make it perform in to make it perform a function that is not very inspiring. I mean, it is inspiring because you can say, oh, great, you can make a floor, but it makes you think into us making the floor and it doesn't make you think into the future. So imagining that seaweed floor helped a lot about defining what we should make because I realized, no, it's definitely not a seaweed floor. What would the opposite be? What would it be if it hadn't to, um, like, if it didn't fulfill such a clear function so that people actually don't get an answer when they see it, but they get more questions? Uh, and what if it could um, follow the material so much that it almost enhances it, that the material is the front, the kind of the main actor in the play, and that instead of pressing the material and forcing it into some kind of function that it, that it mutes it, I ask the material what it could actually, like how it could best show its own materiality. And I am serving the material, I'm using the material as a, a material, but it's also, I'm serving it to give it its best possible voice. And that was, in a way, how we started planning what to build. That we then really attuned ourselves to the rhythm of the seaweed, to what it affords, what it kind of, you know, to the length of the material we get, to the width, to how we can connect it with rattan, to what shapes will arise from that, and how we can match it 
with thin enough rattan so that the seaweed can actually still pull itself into self-tightened skins and shape the object back. Because if you see an object where the material is allowed to shape it, you can read the materiality, you can read the character and the characteristics of the materiality in the object. And that's really important, especially if you work with an unknown material, because people won't know anything about it. So we should we try to make uh, an object that was as legible as possible in its material properties and as um, evocative as possible in its function. So we didn't want to give an answer. We wanted to pose questions through it. So um, this object uh, that you just talked about, uh, was this um, produced at the end or for the end of this residency? Is that correct? Yeah, pretty much. It was in September. I think we had another couple of weeks afterwards to wrap up. But yes, it was. it came out at the end. But then if you look at your whole PhD, which probably took um, a few years longer, I mean, so the residency was for half a year, um, this is probably not the only outcome. Um, I mean, uh, you, you have a list in your PhD about outcomes. And um, so uh, things like, like this object is just one part. So maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on what you, are what you think the outcomes of your PhD research are. Yeah. Yeah, I think this was one of, one of my key insights that I had at some point. And again, it started with a gut feeling of when you're an author designer, you're always, you know, you're always then worried about sharing. Like, how can you share and have not your ideas taken from you? And what, how do I now work in a community of practice? How can I give space to other people to come in and, you know, bring in their inspiration and bring in their work and not feel they are working for me, but with me on something bigger? And I think that was one of the key insights that I realized with every test we're making, we have a multitude of outcomes. With every object we're making, we have a multitude of outcomes and with the dialogues as well. So there is not one outcome out of a design process, but there is a thing that comes out, which is, I don't know, the artifact, but it could also be a website. It could also be the graphic or uh, it could also be an event, for example. But then you also create uh, one outcome is the knowledge, how to make that thing. Um, and then another one is the community or the, the network you built to make that happen. And then another one is um, a, a clearer idea of your own vision or your own pathway on which this thing sets you. So in a way, that feedback loop from the thing that tells you, is that the right way or should there be another way? And the mission. So I think there are more outcomes even. But the minute you understand each um, design action you're doing to have these multiple outcomes, um, you can decide how you share it. So you could imagine um, some, some processes where you are sharing the object, but you're keeping all the knowledge in the network for yourself. Or you could um, imagine some other ones where everyone keeps their objects, but you're sharing some of the knowledge and some of the network to make them, and some of the opportunities. So this is more what we have basically at the Department of Seaweed, where if somebody asks me for an exhibition or asks Violaine for an exhibition, then we say, oh, or how about opening this up to the Department of Seaweed? And then we kind of share that opportunity and we share some of the knowledge. If I get stuck, I can ask her, have you done this before? And do you know how to do it? And we 
advise each other and help each other, for example, um, and share opportunities. And if there is the possibility to do a project in one of the countries where somebody of the Department of Seaweed sits, then I don't have to fly there, then they do it. And I, you know, liaise with them or talk with them or not at all, or they just do it. And then we, we use the information later again, how to do it. Um, that's very interesting. And from your, uh, from your answer, I sense that you see a kind of certain conflict between um, authorship-driven design and actually a PhD, which in itself is supposed to spread knowledge, to produce and spread knowledge. So is that, is that correct? Is there, do you see a, um, a certain um, kind of problem there or... Yeah, I mean, it was always a question that we had. And at some point, <laughs> my supervisor, Hilary French, would actually say, when we made this object, she was like, Oki Nagano de, who is that? Who are you collaborating with now? <laughs> <laughs> Because that's the name of the sculpture we did. But it was also quite deliberately... Uh, a Japanese-sounding name because it felt like I was collaborating with a seaweed to make that sculpture. So in a way, she was right. She had the right hunch. I was collaborating, but the person was the seaweed, not another person yet again. But there was this moment of despair of, wow, how, where can this be open and where does it need to become a PhD and need to become closed? But in a way, we were asking ourselves this while having the residency and later we weren't because, of course, writing a PhD is something completely different than doing this half-year practice. The practice was the, you know, it was the content of the work, but then writing the work again, you know, of course I was writing it by myself. There, the only conflict that arose was, in a way, because I'm working with my husband together in the studio quite a lot, and we, we work together very much when we are writing texts, when we're reflecting on the work. So in a way, even there... He was, of course, in there as kind of, you know, a sounding board and so forth. And I think there quite often, you know, I mean, if you read the thanks notes of any PhD, you will have a list of whatever, however many people, you know. So it's a bit of an illusion that this is ever a one, one man or one woman job. It's, it never is. It's always like, it's always a team of people working on that somehow. So, um Let's get to the point where you presented your PhD. Um, you were talking about writing your PhD, but um, how was it in your case? Was the text actually um, the only thing that you presented to the PhD? Or did you have an exhibition? Or did you bring in some objects? Or how did this work out? I made quite an extensive um, appendix for my PhD. The appendix was finished before the PhD because I wanted... Again, I didn't want to show one final object, but I wanted to show that practice, that process of um, knowledge emerging, the process that has uh, knowledge in flux, I think, or knowing, rather, knowing in flux rather than congealed knowledge in, an, in a final object. So I added all of this into an appendix that I um, produced with the PhD, and that was actually, it's actually the book that sometimes I gave to people Uh, when they wanted to know more about it, I, I printed 20 or so, and then sometimes I would give them this um, if they were collaborating with me. Or, um, you know, I also produced enough for the people who helped me throughout the process. But 
Um, and then I had an exhibition at the, v at the RCA, I think, um, but that was after my presentation. I, I presented through uh, images and then through objects. I just made a setup for the examiners. But then um, I think it was after the deadline for that year's graduation. So the year after I, I presented in their graduation show. Um, but then that presentation was, of course, a lot smaller. And what you know, the VNA half year was really that the main presentation of the content, I would say. Um, yes. But so then um, you just mentioned the, the the final presentation, which I think you're referring to as you know is is the viva, the the defense, as it sometimes is called. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? Because um, how did it feel for you? And, you know, sometimes I hear it's more like an, um, an open conversation amongst peers. Uh, in some cases, it's more like really a kind of a defense where, where, um, uh, where you have to justify your work. What was your impression? How did it feel like? I changed department during my uh, PhD because they were restructuring the design products department at the RCA. Well, I had to get another supervisor because uh, that person I had before was not at the at the RCA anymore. And I moved to innovation design engineering and uh, my new supervisor was Ashley Hall then. Um, so he was there. And then my other supervisor, Jana Scholze from the V&A was also there. And then we had the two examiners also there. And um, they, it felt really like a very engaged conversation, but I was very nervous before and I did what I normally never do. I really wrote a script because I knew I wanted to bring so much content into my Viva that I really almost read my script. And in retrospect, I think it would have been better if I had done it free flow like I do most things. I think that really maybe wouldn't have been necessary. Maybe I should have written it and then put it aside and just do it completely free flow anyway. Um, because at that point, you've written it, you have the knowledge, and it's much nicer engagement if you are allowing people to, you know, probe you, and then you have a pro proper answer directly rather than sticking to your script. It was very, very unlike me to be so strict with my script and it showed <laughs> how worried I was about this completely going pear-shaped somehow. <laughs> But then um, you just mentioned your supervisors. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the supervision process? I mean, how how did the supervisors interpret their roles? Um, how how did they engage with you? Yeah, so it, it was... Um, I have to say, I went... Uh, part-time after the first year of study because I had other job commitments uh, in parallel. So in a way, it took quite a long time um, because then I also had uh, our second child within that time of the PhD. So in a way, I, I spent, I think, altogether seven years, six years on the on the PhD. And that meant that also there were a lot of changes, institutionary changes, and both my a uh, supervisor from the VNA had gone to Kingston at the end as um, the change in uh, supervision, but also in department um, in the Royal College of Art with big, big changes happening. And I had also moved country at the same time. So being at the school wasn't as immersive as it was during my MA when you just had your desk and you would be there every day and you had this amazing community of students who were working alongside you. And I think I was missing that. 
And I really would advise everybody to create that yourself if it's not happening in your institution, to create really that group of, that cohort of people who are in the same process as you are. Um, but what was great that um, in innovation design engineering, they really tried to create these groups. So we had uh, very intensive workshops to which then I could also come because even if I came from abroad, um, that were for one week design methods. And these workshops helped to really demystify some of the things that went on. But at the same time, also for us as a community of um, doctoral students to actually really meet and really work with each other and engage. And that would carry us uh, further so that we, we wouldn't have met each other, we wouldn't know um, and that we can call each other. So in one of these workshops, I met a very senior student who was uh, junior to me in kind of PhD order. And then I, we spoke about our topics. It was so engaging. And then I said to him, oh, do you want to be my reader? Do you want to, you know, read what I'm writing? I said, yeah, great. I have to write, I have to read kind of um, doctoral thesis anyway. And I have to say that um, kind of peer-to-peer -peer help of getting somebody who is not as far as you in the process to read your drafts and to be in that swamp with you when you when suddenly you you lose orientation and think oh what am I doing where am I going what makes sense now to have somebody who has read enough of your text to actually say oh I don't know I don't know what you mean with this and what is this that really helped a lot so I would advise everyone to get a reader and to be the reader for somebody else and this is a peer-to-peer -peer process we had actually in the master in the Royal College of Art and Design Products that the first years would always give like some weeks of their time to assist the second years when it comes to the final show and learn and kind of be, you know, really work together with and give your time to that. And then that time you would get again from a first year when it came to your show preparations. And I think the same peer-to-peer -peer help could be a lot more established in many institutions. So while it's not established, I would advise everyone to seek it for themselves and reach out to people. Um, that's great. I mean, with, with all the amazing outcome that you have, you, you were not talk, talking about st struggling, you know, in between. So, uh, so, so it seems you had your own struggles and you had your moments of not knowing where this goes. Um, uh, yes, I mean, I have to say, like, the biggest questioning moment came maybe half a year before I completed, where I really did not know whether I am half a year before completely dropping out or whether it's nearly done. And it, it never felt done. It didn't feel done on the day I, I handed it in. So I think this kind of handing in something that feels still very much in flux, needing to pin it down to this deadline and then saying, okay, now it's done because I'm out of time. That felt really difficult and really uncomfortable. And in a way, it was great that I had set, I had some set deadlines through my funding. I don't know whether I, had, I would have ever completed it if I didn't didn't have that. I think this is what a lot of uh, doctoral students are struggling with who are in systems where they don't have any kind of outside pressure to finish on time. I think it's so easy to say, oh, no, it's not ready. It's not ready. Another year, another year. So in a way, it was good that that was forced. But um, for practitioners, quite often, uh, you know, to write about your work and to write academically about your work is a really steep learning curve because we're quite often not taught how to do that. And then if we're taught how to do that, quite often we keep it, um, 
like we develop very different processes for writing that are quite away from our uh, experience in making. And that's a struggle. Like I see that a lot also with master students in a way that they say, oh, I have to write academically. And then they switch off all their senses almost that they have developed so much, their gut feeling, their, you know, sensing how to do something, knowing, you know, really they they become devoid of a lot of their uh, body of expertise. And I don't think it's necessary. I think you can bring this together with writing, but you have to find ways of doing it. And that's that's kind of a challenge. Um, for example, one of the things I found out was that uh, I had created with the Department of Seaweed this space that was both real and in a way um, hypothetical. So it was very real. It was there. People would come in and be like, oh, it's the Department of Seaweed. I didn't know the V&A had a Department of Seaweed. And I would say, yes, it has. Welcome. And I'm the head of the department. Please come in. So, so it was there. Nobody could dispute that the V&A uh, had a Department of Seaweed at that time. But at the same time, of course, it was a hypothetical department. It wasn't the official one. But then how do you write about this when you have to, you know, be objective and, you know, really have this, uh, you know, rigor in your writing? Um, how can you recreate that experience of both being real and hypothetical in a text? So I, I ended up writing one section of my PhD in the voice of the head of Department of Seaweed to give me that ability to actually recreate some of this experience in the PhD. And I made it quite deliberate that, you know, I would write the introduction, like I would write in that chapter. And now I give you this experience of coming into the Department of Seaweed. I will change, you know, my hat as a writer now. I'll be the head of department and welcome. And then I would write 10 pages about in this other voice, basically. And I think that really, for example, that moment that I realized I can do that, I'm allowed to do that. It's totally fine to be playful and creative um, and there is space in academic writing for finding these playful workarounds to actually bring some of the experience into the text. And I think that was, that was a great moment of discovery and made me feel really reassured that somehow also the creative practices can add something to academic writing if we are bold enough to, if we're bold enough and if we, are, uh, if we have also advisors who are bold enough to let us do it. Uh, absolutely, I agree. I mean, you know, as, as someone who, who has also to, to read a lot of student work, and um, I mean, as you too, uh, we all enjoy, uh, or we always, we, we always love when we, when we enjoy reading something. You know, it doesn't have to be dry. And, <laughs> and, and in this, that's, that's kind of um, where, where what my next question points at. Um, you were kind of, you know, talking about this divide between doing uh, practical work and then writing. And for me, I always, um, I mean, my, my background is also in, in design originally, but meanwhile, I'm more involved with writing and managing, etc. But writing for me is always a kind of a mode of thinking, as is reading, you know, the world of, in general, this is the world of ideas, of, of, of theory, etc., so maybe can you talk a bit how in your case, talk about how, how in your case kind of this, this modes of reading, uh, th writing 
and working, um, your, your, your design practice, how they work together and how they maybe also fed each other? Yes, I, yes. In a way, that's, that maybe was the core of the struggle. Because, yes, writing and reading can be these great moments of inspiration and of going like, oh, wow, so this person has really developed a theory about what I'm just now discovering in practice and I'm not alone in this. So it can make you feel that you are part of a big community of people from all different um, backgrounds who are actually looking at the same thing and who have so beautifully voiced it and and then you can use that as fuel for your processes. The problem with me is that I I immediately then come up with more ideas for what to make when I read these things. So, so in a way, for me, the struggle, I guess, is to feed, to be inspired by the reading, but then feed it into the writing rather than into more making. I think that was one of the struggles. And then the other struggle, I guess, is that there are simple things you have to write down. You have to, you know, you have to think of your reader and you have to explain to them what's happening and da -da -da, and what has happened and why it was relevant. And then you connect it to all this knowledge. So my problem would be that I get very ex uh, inspired by the readings, but then I couldn't allow myself to feed it into practice because that wasn't the moment. So the most inspiring moments for reading and writing were not the most fruitful ones for the PhD. They would then go into a notebook of, oh, I have to check this in the next iteration. <laughs> But they would, like, there was always this inspiration that would pull me out of this, no, now I have to write this text. And this is the text I have to write. And I don't need more content. I have to write down what already happened. Yeah, that sounds very, very <laughs> familiar. <laughs> okay, um, Julia, so um, now you've, you've finished your PhD And um, you're, you're still working on your topic. You, you finished your PhD when? 2017, but then the graduation was 2018. So You're still working on, uh, with, with seaweed, is, is that correct? Yes. So can you tell us a little bit about what followed after the PhD with regards to the topic? Yes, so I'm still working with seaweed. I'm developing the Department of Seaweed, um, this community of practice further. I'm a professor at Alto University now, and um, here uh, in, in Helsinki, uh, or in Finland, rather. Um, and here it, uh, it's really interesting because we have a chemistry department, a design department, and all kinds of different uh, departments that can work together um, in these more transdisciplinary projects. So for me, this is a very interesting place to be for building a transdisciplinary community of practice and for bringing knowledge around. So I'm involved in a few different research projects, uh, one on biocolor, one on how uh, cre uh, creatures, one uh, how creative practices can uh, work towards the sustainable development goals, uh, and another one on more than human-centric framings for um, um, for architectural interventions, specifically lighting design. Uh, in night situations, uh, in winter situations in the Nordic countries. And in a way, it's very interesting because the work with research and the work with seaweed feeds into all of this as well as the teaching practices that I do. Um, so, for example, uh, we're running a studio called Materials and Living Systems where we are actually focusing the studio on 
uh, seaweed one year, on fungi the other year. I run that together with Anna van der Ley. And then we really immerse the students first into uh, the living system of that organism before it then becomes for them appreciable as a potential material. And then they develop some scenarios or materials out of this. But the idea is that they get a sensitivity and a kind of empathy for that living organism first before transforming it to understand that everything we do, you know, wood doesn't come from the hardware shop, it comes from the forest. So we should think back to the forest and think of what impact that wood has in its forest setting and how it's produced when we're making anything from it. So we should consider a lot more the character of the material. So then it goes into this teaching. And with the Department of Seaweed itself, uh, it's developed really beautifully. Like we have lots of exhibitions in uh, renowned museums um, for, uh, in kind of very big settings like uh, the World Economic Forum in Davos. We were asked to make um, both a pavilion, but also kind of an engagement with people. So in a way, I see that work as uh, unlocking and opening up spaces for possible dialogue. Uh, and then I see each of these iterations as uh, a test bed in a way to see how we can discuss what future we want to have and come together as community of practice in many different places. Um, and and I'm crafting these places for discourse, basically. So seaweed is the, the material, it's the method, and it's also the inspiration and the muse. So I'm writing a lot of texts about, um, you know, like more philosophical texts, or I don't know, more about the character of seaweed and how that character um, influences the design process, influences what makes sense to make from seaweed, influences how to play with it and so forth on many different levels and scales. So it's kind of helping me think through uh, a lot of the topics. And um, yeah, and, and in a way, seaweed, it could also be any other material, but I find it really fruitful also to stay with a material for an extended amount of time because it doesn't mean that I have to focus all my work on seaweed, but through engaging with seaweed, I can think through a lot of the topics that we have uh, on our plate for the 21st century. Great. Now, Yulia, if uh, one of your students, um, you know, MA students just finished, would come up to you and would say, um, you know, I would like to do a PhD. Is there some piece of advice you would give, some kind of more general to anyone who wants to start a PhD in, in, the, in the arts? Yeah, I think the first question is, what topic really warrants you spending a good part of your life on researching it? Like, why do you want to do that? And, and which topic makes sense for you to do it on? And then the second part, I think, would be to really have your values engaged in what you want to do. Don't just do it for the sake of, you know, oh, I want to have this academic career. Really do something where, where you find meaning, where you think, oh, this really needs the time. And I really want to figure out what to do in this, in this area. And then maybe that makes sense to do as a PhD. And then I would approach actually really like reach out to people even if they're famous even you know if you reach out in a very nice and friendly way uh, and maybe also persistent way because everyone gets too many emails <laughs> then 
you will get really good advice. And then don't ask them for being supervisor, but ask them for their opinion, because maybe they don't, even if they're not in the position to be a supervisor immediately, they might point you in the right direction, you know, ask them to uh, have a coffee with you or to, you know, have a Zoom, half an hour Zoom with you to just discuss what you might want to do. And I think that's maybe the best uh, advice I can give at this moment. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Julia, for this um, amazing insights. And um, yeah, hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks for listening to Dr. Arts a podcast about doing a PhD in the arts and design.